as an efficiency community, we have to be resilient, right? That's probably the hardest thing to do and to be in a politicized environment is to be resilient yourself, to not give up, to not slow down the pace of what you're trying to accomplish because you're challenged by it. Because the reality is we're likely to always be challenged as an industry we're built for that. And if we're really committed, then you push through and you find new ways to talk to new people to convince them that what you're doing is the right thing to do. Welcome to Climate Positive, a podcast produced by Hannon Armstrong, a leading investor in climate solutions. I'm Chad Reed. I'm Hillary Langer. I'm Gil Jenkins. In this series, we host candid conversations with the leaders, innovators, and changemakers driving our climate positive future. On this week's pod, I sat down with Paula Glover, president of the Alliance to Save Energy, a bipartisan nonprofit coalition of business, government, environmental, and consumer leaders advocating to advance federal energy efficiency policy. The Alliance is a tireless proponent of energy efficiency, and they're organized around a visionary outlook which states that a nation that uses energy more productively can achieve economic growth, a cleaner environment, and greater energy security, affordability, and reliability. Since its founding 45 years ago, the Alliance to Save Energy has played an integral role in nearly every major energy efficiency policy achievement on the national stage. And as a longtime proponent of the critical but sometimes unheralded role that efficiency plays in combating climate change, I was excited to chat with Paula about the work of the Alliance and learn more about her personal journey and perspectives on a range of topics. As I hope you'll take away from this interview, we are lucky to have such a wise, passionate and dedicated person leading the charge for energy efficiency in America. So with that, here's my conversation with Paula. Welcome to Climate Positive, Paula. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So our company has been a proud member of the Alliance Save Energy for over 20 years. But for our listeners who aren't as familiar with the work of the Alliance, could you share a little bit about the mission, the core work? And, you know, give us some reflections on the last year since you took the helm of the Alliance in January of 21. Okay, sure. So the Alliance is about to celebrate its 45th birthday, established in 1977. For those of your listeners who remember the mid to late 70s, that was right after the oil embargo, um, 74 and 75. And in our industry, that is actually 1977 is about the time that the Department of Energy was established and a lot of our organizations were established. We at the Alliance are a bipartisan, we are focused on bipartisanship. We are a coalition of business, industry, environmental groups, and others. We have a focus on energy efficiency and the importance of efficiency, and we focus on federal advocacy as well as other activities. I think in this day and age, today specifically, the work that we do at the Alliance is incredibly important for a multitude of reasons. And as we reflect on the last couple of years, I would say, from March 2020, when we really started shutting things down because of the pandemic and moving forward, we've been in an era of social justice movements, economic distress, and then economic recovery, as well as a clean energy transition, trying to address climate change, want to have rapid decarbonization. And I believe that the work that we do at the Alliance and that our members do around energy efficiency is critical to this moment and movement that we have seeing ourselves in as a society. 
And what I mean by that is that if we want to have decarbonization and address climate change, and we must, that happens with full participation of everybody and energy efficiency. That's how we're going to get there. There are other tools that we will also need, but absent energy efficiency, this crisis cannot be solved. That is my opinion. I believe that deeply, but I also think that the data from IEA and others backs me up on that one. Secondarily, if we're talking about economic recovery, clean energy and the clean energy economy, the truth is that energy efficiency makes up the largest workforce in the energy industry at about two, 2.3 million jobs. And our recovery has to happen. And it is happening slowly. But again, we are the, I would say, leading employers in this industry. We have the most opportunity for people to participate in our new energy economy. And so that makes, I think, efficiency special. Thirdly, we are also in a point of time when I mentioned economic distress, that we have many American households that suffer from high energy burden. And what I mean by that is that a large portion of their income goes towards paying their energy bills in excess of sometimes 30 and 40%. And so anything that we can do to make people use energy more efficiency, doing more by using less, clearly will then lessen their energy burden and give them more money to spend on all the other needs that they have. In addition to that, energy efficiency can really also help solve our problems around energy insecurity. Energy insecurity as defined by those households who make a choice at least once a year between paying their energy bills or buying food and or medicine. And what we know is that about 30% of American households make that choice at least one month a year. Many of those households make that choice multiple months of the year. And too many of those households make that choice every single month a year. And then if we break that down and we look at our African-American households and our Latino households, that number goes from 30% to 40% for our Latino households and 50% for African-American households. So again, if we think about how do we do more by using less, efficiency can really help lessen the energy insecurity that households are feeling. And so it is certainly my opinion or my contention that in this moment, energy efficiency is really uniquely poised to help us as a society address a lot of different issues. And I think we are an important tool in our overall economy to address those issues. Music to our ears uh, is a longtime champion for uh, the first fuel and energy efficiency and an essential climate solution. I've heard you talk very movingly about your first experience in the energy field, coming out of college, uh, working in customer service for a gas company. And when I heard that, I, I thought a little bit about my first job, which was actually pumping gas. Uh, it was my first job in the industry and talking about, you know, connection with real people and real challenges in their household and seeing that. And you mentioned those stats about the energy insecurity we face in this great country. Tell us about that experience. Sure, I'd be happy to. So, you know, my first job out of college was working for the local gas company taking customer payments. And when I started, I actually did not know that my town had a gas company. I had no idea what a gas company did. And so I learned a lot just in obviously like understanding what the business was. 
But that job for me was the most informative and probably the most important job I've ever had because I got to interact with customers every single day. And I truly believe that we have no idea the impact of our work until you sit across the table from somebody who's really struggling and has to come to you with a level of humility and humbleness that many of us, I think, would not want to do with a stranger to ask them to help them in this situation because they cannot afford to pay a bill. You know, I often tell a story about one particular customer who resonates deeply with me. I was probably about 25. She was probably about my age. And she had three very young children, all under the age of maybe four. It was right after welfare reform in the late mid-90s, actually. And so whatever money she was getting had been drastically reduced. She had an enormous bill and she lived near me. I knew where she lived. She lived in subsidized housing. And while I was working at the gas company, I wasn't making a million dollars a year. So I was living in the same exact neighborhood. I understood what that distress was. So when she shared with me and I knew she had a bill that was about $1,200, but she was bringing in cash of about $300 a month. And so in that moment, right, the rules might have been shut them off until they can pay you. But the reality was when you see someone has $300 a month that they're bringing in and you know that their bill averages $500 a month because they live in substandard housing and all the other things that go along with living in poverty, there was no way she was going to be able to pay us. And so we came up with an arrangement that was about five bucks a week. And this young woman, every Friday, got on a city bus with her three small children, came to my office to hand me a $5 bill and go back home. And most of that was a a show of commitment that she was really going to do what she said she was going to do. But my learning was, what does grace really look like? What does it look like to do the best that you can? She is what that looks like. And I can tell you now, almost 30 years later, I still remember that customer. That one customer has defined my work for my entire career. And so I do feel deeply about the work that I do and that we do and that the importance, because I have in my life an example and I understand how it matters. The other side of that, you know, Gil, more personally is I can recall having the lights shut off when I was a kid. I remember my mother not being able to pay the bill for weeks, to live in the dark for two to three weeks, to have to boil water, to take a bath, all of those things that many American households go through today. And so I just think our ability as an industry to share the importance of our work, because that's what it really can effectuate. That's Those are the changes that it can make is important. And while we can talk about grid resiliency, um, we can talk about modernization, we can talk about all these other things that we're doing, which are also important. But at the end of the day, there's a person at the end of our work. At the end of that cycle, there is a person. And that's what I'm always thinking about. Wow. And this notion of grace and no doubt that experience in your own journey gives you that empathy superpower, right? And yeah. how essential that is in building coalitions. And not to to depress people, but as an African-American woman, what I know 
is for many people who look like me, irregardless of the level of success that we have, we too may find ourselves two paychecks, one paycheck away from that same exact situation. And so it is really important to constantly exercise my empathetic muscle because it's not like it's that far away. I've been thinking a lot about the Justice 40 initiative, which (laughs) seeks to deliver 40% of the benefits to disadvantaged communities from environmental investments. Alliance talks a lot about, you know, this efficiency gap. What are your thoughts on the Justice 40 initiative promise and potential where, you know, where we are today? I'm an internal optimist. So in that way, I could probably be in the middle of a storm and find something that was really great about it. That's just kind of my personality. But I do think we have been experiencing so much change and that the administration has laid out a pathway that I think is something that we should all feel really enthusiastic about. I also think, though, that it is really important that we remember and ensure that we bring everyone along with us, particularly even those that we may disagree with. The unfortunate thing about the moment that we're in today and have been in for some time is really the politicization of some ideas and ideals that had never been really something that we fought about. And we are finding that because efficiency is a climate solution, sometimes we get looped into that climate fight in a way that people don't see efficiency as a value because the climate discussion has become about politics and not about science. And so, you know, one of the things that we do at the Alliance, um, we've always done and why we stress bipartisanship is because you have to talk to everybody. But in this day, when we think about Justice 40, we also need to use the kind of language that ensures that people see themselves in what's going on. For some folks, when they hear equity, frontline communities, disadvantaged communities, what they think and see are black and brown people. And most of the time, that's very, very true, right? These communities, my community, black communities, brown communities, we are incredibly impacted by pollution and all kinds of other environmental hazards. But that does not mean that there are not communities of white people who are also suffering. And we have to do a really good job of making sure, particularly that our politicians understand that the communities that Justice 40 is designed to effectuate are not just blue communities. They're red and blue communities. They're in red and blue states. They're not just black and brown people, but they're poor people. They're impoverished people. They're people who have been left behind. And we need to paint the kind of picture, I need to paint the kind of picture that stresses the importance of the work that I do for everybody, because we are all touched by it. Will some communities benefit them more than others? Absolutely. I think that's what Justice 40 is trying to do. But what Justice 40 is really trying to do is play catch up. It's not so that these communities are going to leapfrog. It's so that we can actually get them caught up to where everybody else is. My personal opinion is that this initiative is really important and it's something to be incredibly excited about. I also think 40% investment is likely not enough because these are communities that have been forgotten for generations. These are communities who've had a lack of investment or no investment for generations. And 
I just don't think 40% is going to be enough as other communities are continuing to move forward. I would love a world where no one's playing catch up. And I think Justice 40 will help communities start to play catch up. But I also think that that's likely not enough of an investment to actually have parity. I'm with you. And and staying on this theme of the polarized time, I mean, one of the reasons I'm so passionate and hopeful about energy efficiency, particularly within the climate realm and the track record is, well, at least before, I mean, it was the one sort of set of technologies that enjoyed such strong bipartisan support. And it still does today. It isn't politicized. So then that's the opportunity and the responsibility that energy efficiency has for the broader decarbonization movement to remind people, you know, there are 3 million clean energy jobs in this country, but 2.2 million of them are are energy efficiency jobs. That's electricians, yeah. that's HVAC contractors. These are blue collar jobs, right? And I think we love wind and solar too, and we invest in that, but like, we've got to remember, you know, we're going to need a lot more electricians and, and yeah. do this transition too. And sometimes I get frustrated with the political elites who don't remember that the clean energy economy is maybe not yeah. a person going up the wind turbine or installing, it's that too, mm-hmm. but um, thoughts on that? Yeah. I, I mean, I completely agree with you. I think, you know, look, storytelling for me is critical. And so we just have to tell the stories, but we also, we can't tell the same stories to the same people. You have to kind of know who you're talking to. You have to tell a story that you believe is going to resonate with what their interests in particular situation may or may not be, may be, excuse me. But I think efficiency can do that. And I think as an efficiency community, we have to be resilient, right? That's probably the hardest thing to do and to be in a politicized environment is to be resilient yourself, to not give up, to not slow down the pace of what you're trying to accomplish because you're challenged by it. Because the reality is we're likely to always be challenged. We're built for that. As an industry, we're built for that. And if we're really committed, then you push through and you find new ways to talk to new people to convince them that what you're doing is the right thing to do. And I love that, you know, yet is it hard and frustrating sometimes? Sure. But it also can be incredibly joyful when somebody gets it. And so I think, you know, as industry professionals, we talk so much about resilience of our grid and our systems, but really we're the ones who should be resilient. We have to be resilient and not get so discouraged when things don't happen easy because they're not. Right. And, and also not get out the circular firing squad when we, we don't get the perfect outcome. <laughs> yeah. Right? So yeah, let's yeah. stay on that brass tacks and policy and advocacy. You had a recent post, 21 wins for energy efficiency in 2021. It's been a very busy legislative environment. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to remember all 21. Yeah, please don't. Uh, could you highlight a few of the big wins for energy efficiency? And, you know, I would say the planet and jobs too, but yeah. in this past year, and then like, what are you thinking about for 2022? I mean, I think we're incredibly excited about all the efficiency dollars and the commitment to efficiency that happened in the infrastructure bill. That's been amazing. We had some other priorities that we had in in Build Back Better, and we're still pushing through, right? That's what I mean by resiliency. You may not get the biggest thing. You may only get something small, but that doesn't mean that you just say, oh, it's something small, and I walk away from it. We try to figure out what are those things that are going to resonate with these legislators, that we can get them to support, put their votes behind, 
and and we can push forward. You know, we're incredibly excited about dollars for weatherization. To my point about equity, we talked about Justice 40, but programs like weatherization and LIHEAP continue to be incredibly important. To have them funded, fully funded is also important, but we also know that full funding doesn't get you all the way to where you need to be. We have problems that we actually, I don't think we can buy our way out of, right? We can't expect that government's going to make an investment and then poof, we're great, this is going to require all of us in a lot of creative and innovative thinking. And so, you know, as we think about what's going to happen and how we're going to focus on the next year, part of it is how is money spent, how we have lots of money that's been committed for investments. That money still has to get to the states. It has to be spent. And so we're going to be thinking deeply and working with members of the administration and trying to influence them to ensure that that money is spent in the way that we think is going to be best for a lot of people. But at the same time, we're continuing to fight for some of our other priorities around expanded 25C taxes, expanding tax credits, maintaining tax credits. And in this year, 2022, we're really going to be creating some new initiatives to think about what other kinds of tools do we need? I believe, and we at the Alliance believe, that universal access and adoption to energy efficiency I said that when I, we first opened, is critical and important for a just energy transition, reduction of energy security, insecurity and burden, and addressing climate change. But for that to happen, we have to have the right tools in place and the right programs. And, and we have to measure those programs appropriately. And so that means it's a combination of weatherization type programs, Financing tools like those that your organization offers, just basic weatherization dollars for low-income customers, working with utilities and thinking about what kind of rebates work and should it be rebates or should it be a discount? It's tax credits and understanding who are those consumers who actually use tax credits and who are those homeowners who actually don't use tax credits. And so is that the right tool? And so we're going to spend a lot of time this year building out some reports and really trying to understand how communities make decisions and then what are the tools that we need to help them. That's a big focus of ours. But in addition to that, we at the Alliance in our 45th year are going to be kicking off Energy 2040, which is really our North Star. It's our tool for us to drive us as a team and as an, as an organization, as in a coalition, to think about what does equity mean for our industry and how do we contribute that to think about how do we further our efficiency goals legislatively, but also to think about like what's going on at the state level. How do we support at the state level in a way that's going to be useful and true to the work that we do? How do we educate regulators if that's what we need to do? How do we do broad community outreach? How do we work with smaller nonprofit organizations that are on the ground and create new kinds of partnerships and alliances? Because we can't do it all from Washington. I certainly can't do it from my seat. There are so many people out there who are doing this work. And look, let me be the first to say, doing it way better than I ever could imagine to do it. And so I want to make sure that I am partnering with those people and we are looking at their expertise and taking their guidance and having them educate us about the things that we don't know about how communities operate 
and integrate with one another, et cetera, so that we are truthful to this mission that we have and these goals that we have as an organization. So staying on this theme of collaboration and initiatives, I want to ask you about one more. And it kind of relates to this question I have about, you know, the semantics and the word, word choice <laughs> of energy efficiency. For a minute, energy efficiency, we, we were playing with like energy productivity. We have this concept of active efficiency, mm-hmm. which I like. And there's mm-hmm. the active efficiency collaborative that Alliance launched, I think a couple of years ago now. 2020, right? 2020. So could you talk about that initiative in particular and kind of explain, mm-hmm. again, this notion of what traditional energy efficiency measures with these new digital technologies? Because I think most people probably think the light bulb, right? Or they think maybe HVAC, but maybe lights or you know, other lighting. So give us a sense of what the, the traditional meets the new digital and, and how that rolls up to yeah. active efficiency concept and collaborative. Sure. So active efficiency collaborative for the alliance is this really exciting project that really is, right, as you've described it, the digitization of efficiency. It's how we get to demand response. It's how we get to virtual power plants, demand flexibility, appliances that talk to the grid and allow the grid to talk to your appliances, being able to shed load. All these types of digital transactions is how I I think about it in my own head. It really comes under this idea of active efficiency. And so that is the future. We know that that's where we're going. We're already seeing that, right? With more rollouts of smart meters, folks who have now like ring doorbells and Nest thermostats or Ecobees and all the products that companies are selling themselves or that you can get at a Home Depot or at a Lowe's. The reality is that without the traditional efficiency measures already installed, these new technologies actually are meaningless for folks, right? And we have way too many households who do not have traditional efficiency measures installed. That's insulation, that's windows, lighting, doors, air conditioning, right? Heating and cooling, basic stuff. When we start to talk about what our future is going to look like, particularly around the building envelope, and I'm going to stick to residential customers for this particular conversation, When I'm talking about universal access and adoption, I'm talking about many times customers who do not have traditional efficiency measures. We're already talking about the future of efficiency, and we need to figure out how we're going to bridge this huge gap that we have in getting those particular households to even like what I would consider baseline. That means they're well insulated, they have the proper lighting, they have really efficient heating and cooling folks feel comfortable in their home, all of that. And then once you get to that, then you can get to all the other new technologies. Central to that though, in active efficiency, particularly from an equity standpoint, is access to broadband, right? Because the talking back and forth doesn't really work if you don't have a strong internet connection. And if among all the other things that uh, this pandemic has gifted us as a nation, as a society, is the importance of a strong internet connection. So now we're starting to see, right, that it's not just our stuff. We need folks to have access to broadband. We learned that access to good education actually requires access to broadband. Who knew? We'd only be talking about books and everything, right? And so, you know, to your question about collaboration and partnership, The Alliance to Save Energy is not a broadband telecommunications organization. 
But we need to have partners who do focus on that because we need them to make our stuff work, right? Access is not just lines in the ground. Access is affordability, right? Broadband internet service is expensive. When I I used to live in New Jersey, I now live in Maryland. Internet is cheaper in Maryland than it is in New Jersey, but I still spend over $200 a month, right? So it's not cheap. And so if we're thinking about households who are already struggling and why I believe that 40% is not enough is because 40% has to cover not just the basic stuff, but now I actually have to make sure you have the right kind of infrastructure that is affordable so that you can have the new stuff. And so that five generations, three generations from now, we're not having a similar type of Justice 40 initiative because we didn't think far ahead enough ahead about what our, our needs are going to be. And so, you know, active efficiency for us at the Alliance is such an exciting work to be doing. It is that integration of just efficiency and technology and even our utility companies and others. But that doesn't work without the traditional efficiencies measures installed in folks' homes. Not that it doesn't work, but that is not as valuable. And so we can't replace one with the other. One of the things at the Alliance that we really do focus and talk a lot about is like, you need all of it. It's hard, but we need all of it. And then there is some stair steps. And so basics first, new stuff next. The basic stuff is more expensive and sometimes a lot harder to do, but without it, if you don't know how to walk, you're not going to know how to run. If you don't know how to read, you're not going to be able to do such, such and so. If we don't have good windows, doors, lighting and insulation, heating and cooling, we're not having appliances that talk to each other. I know. And we get so distracted by the shiny widgets. Of course. I love a shiny penny. Oh, yeah. And the, the price on these sensors and technology has come down. There's no question the access point, but you're so right to point that out. Mm-hmm. I want to ask, so like us, you started a podcast. Uh, during I the did. Pandemic. Always bet on black. Great name. You want to hear a secret? Well, now your whole audience will hear a secret. I came up with that name because I was obsessing one weekend about the movie with Wesley Snipes, Passenger 57. And he has that line, always bet on black. And I was like, I love that. Oh, gosh. Yeah. He tells There's like my the name. terrorist that or yeah, yeah. That's like the crescendo. <laughs> I love that movie. So what's the show about? It is a show of storytelling. During the pandemic in my previous role, when I was the CEO of the American Association of Blacks and Energy, I was always, I've always been very, very lucky to know phenomenal leaders. I just have. I've I've been incredibly lucky to get to know phenomenal leaders across the spectrum. And so during the summer of 2020, as so many of us were really, I think, reeling from all of the things that were going on at that time, right? We were all reeling for different reasons, but there was just, it was a lot. Like that was just the summer of a lot. You know, I would get an opportunity to talk to leaders and I thought, you know, how awesome would it be for other people to just hear from them, for them to tell their stories? And so my board chair, Chris Womack, who is now the CEO of Georgia Power, you know, I have an idea. I have a a phenomenal team who picked up my idea and ran with it so that I couldn't back out. And I had absolutely planned to back out. They got to me way before I got a shot. Um, But I called Chris Womack and I said, I have this idea. Um, I want to do this podcast. It's really about storytelling. Would you be on it? And he was like, sure. And then scheduled it like 
the next week before I was ready. So I was forced to kind of get ready. And so he really started this journey of being really open about telling his story, telling his story as a leader, telling personal experiences, sharing how he thinks about leadership as an African-American man of a large company. You know, it's kind of like when Barack Obama was elected president, right? Everyone, we had to say, yeah, he's an African-American president, but he's not the president just for black people right? He's America's president. And so I will tell you, as African-Americans in leadership, that is something we all confront, right? That we are representative of a group. And because there aren't many of us, those who look like us do look to us, but we are also leaders for everybody. And there's a bit of a balancing act sometimes that goes along with that. And so that's how Always Bet on Black started. And, And in fact, I am now retaping season two, and we're going to start again of just getting folks to talk about leadership. One of the things that I truly believe is that leadership is not about position or title. And so I look to interview and talk with people who inspire me, and I invite people who listen, they will find that not every person who inspires me is the CEO muckety-muck of an organization. They're just people who inspire me, who have great stories, who were committed to an idea, and they just ran with it. And they're all African-American because I'm African-American and I don't think we tell enough of our stories. And so that's what we're going to continue to do. Awesome. So season two coming out soon. You can subscribe anywhere. You can subscribe, find it anywhere you get your podcasts. You can find me. So let's move to our hot seat. Okay. First one, best piece of advice you're mom ever gave you? You know what? The best piece of advice that I ever got from my mom, and I think, and and she lived this way, was there is always space to be kind, even to those who you think are mean to you. Kindness always rules the day. She did a great job. My mother has been gone for about seven years, but she did a great job because when I'm not kind, I feel such guilt. Even if I feel like I'm right, I feel bad that I wasn't kind. That's what moms do. And you come from a big family. 10 siblings. I'm one of 10. Yeah. And you have a lot of kids too, right? Seven children. We have a blended family, seven children and seven grandchildren. Okay. Um, I have two kids. So give me best piece of parenting advice from someone from a big family. You must have some wisdom. (laughs) You know what? My best piece of advice would be let them figure it out because they will. Love it. Before we taped... You share with me that you were the high school champion in New York for parliamentary procedure. In Connecticut, in Connecticut, yep. So no doubt learning the rules of how to conduct an orderly meeting at such a young age helps you in your career and all, probably all positions. So for those of us who aren't as familiar with parliamentary procedure, uh, <laughs> what's the most important thing about Robert's Rules of Order? The most important thing about Robert's Rules of Order really is that there's a structure to how, not just how you run a meeting, but how you take a vote and then memorialize that vote. And so ensuring that you have a structure, even if you don't do everything in the exact order that the book says, is really important because that is how you're going to be able to catalog what actually, record what actually happened. Um, And you always want to have really good record keeping. Whether you're for-profit or non-profit, really good record-keeping is important. March Madness is around the corner because I know you're a St. John's Red Storm fan. I am. What's going on with this year's squad? 
what, eighth or ninth <laughs> in the Big East? Can we return to the glory days? You know, I'm always going to hold out hope, but I, you know, I will tell you when they rejiggered that Big East back in 1989 and let Miami and all these other funky schools in, it broke my heart and continues to break my heart. But I'll, I'll be a Red Storm fan till I die. I will. You know, I long for the Big East that was just, you know, Providence, UConn, Syracuse, and all those. And check out ESPN's 30 by 30 on what happened to the Big East with Jim Bayheim and, and why they actually broke up. Uh, what's your favorite basketball life lesson? I will tell you the life lesson that I actually got from that, that 30 by 30 and sport in particular as a former athlete is that loyalty to your team is a thing. And it's not loyalty to a person, it's loyalty to your team. It's not just about people, but about a body. And that's important. That's where your commitment tends to lie. The word or phrase I most overuse is? I can't say it here. <laughs> okay. Success <laughs> is? Joy and laughter. I will never? I will never jump out of a plane. Okay, the biggest misconception about energy efficiency is? That you don't need it. Who's your role model in the energy field? A gentleman by the name of Barrett Hatches, African-American man who had served as president of three utility companies in the 90s, one of which was NIPSCO, SEMCO, and then he also did SEMCO, I think, out in Alaska. An incredible person, a dear friend, and absolutely a role model. Kindest person I know. Awesome. The last question we ask all our guests, what does climate positive mean to you? Climate positive means to me that we are going to address this problem, but we're not going to do it on the backs of poor people, which is quite frankly how we address all our problems. And so if we address this one on the backs of poor people, and not just in the United States, across the world... If we can do that without doing it on their backs, that's climate positive for me. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Climate Positive is produced by Hannon Armstrong. If you enjoyed this week's podcast, please leave us a rating and review on Apple and Spotify, which really helps us reach more listeners. You can also let us know what you thought via Twitter at climateposipod or email us at climatepositive at I'm Gil Jenkins, and this is Climate Positive.